Welcome back to another episode of Spidoris. We are so excited that you guys are listening in. You will have just heard last week our amazing friend, Sage Jones, who is an occupational therapist in Texas and doing really great things. And we are super excited to actually bring in someone who has a connection to Stephanie, who you guys listened to, I think it was two episodes ago, right, Hyann? Yes. Yeah. So I have obviously my awesome co-host, Hyann, here with me, and we are super excited to welcome today Jeremy Chan Croucher. He is actually Stephanie's partner, um, living with her out in LA, and we are so excited that you're here, Jeremy. Thanks for jumping on. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. I can't, I'm not going to be able to beat uh, Stephanie's amazing podcast. I'll try it. <laughs> <laughs> hey you might. Like you a, just might exactly it's now like a challenge right at this point we're just gonna have to see but at some point we're gonna bring you both on together because I think that would be really fun as well it would be actually Jeremy are you yeah. half Asian I am I'm, I'm you know multiracial my mom is a was an, an immigrant from Hong Kong so she's uh oh, wow. she moved when she was three years old and then my dad is white Jewish um New Yorker and they live in New York. And I grew up in the New York area. Yeah. Is your mom full Chinese or is she like half? Okay. So you're half. She's full, yeah. She's, she's fully, fully Chinese immigrant. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Our first question for you um, is tell us a little bit about your background and like, how did you get into special education? That's a great question. So yeah, I went yeah. to undergrad. Well, I grew up in a lot of these these sort of bubbles of I would say mm -hmm. privilege and sheltered. I, I grew up in North Jersey. My parents definitely because my dad was was a teacher in public schools for thirty eight years. His mom was a uh, one of the first women to get their masters from Hunter College in New York City. So like education, oh, much, like through my lineage. And then I didn't plan on going into the field of education. I sort of I grew up in an Asian and white town in North Jersey, went to undergrad in Maine and in a small liberal arts school up there, um, not too diverse. And I was really interested in learning more about the world. So I studied sociology and then wound up working for Teach for America on campus, which right off the bat was, uh, you know, I had some reservations about just the way it operated, but I wound up getting in and it gave me the avenue to teach right off the bat. So I was like right after school of 21 years old, right out of college. And I taught in Brooklyn for a little over three years. And so it was sort wow. of just like, it seems like it was during the recession too. So I remember a lot of my friends at that exact time having a really hard time getting jobs. And I felt like, you know, yeah. it was a great opportunity. I was grateful to get in. And that's how I sort of landed there. I, I, I always knew I don't, I wasn't like, I want to be a teacher forever. I, I was always open to more. And then, yeah. um, had the opportunity to work at Central in the bureaucracy for then over a decade after teaching in New York City. That is amazing. So how many years, how many years did you teach before you moved into Central? Yeah, only, it was like three full school years and then a little before and mm -hmm. after. That was really it. And like, we can get into it too around these teacher prep wow. programs. I'll be honest about how unprepared I felt in my first year, I mean, right after college, getting this transitional certificate to be able to teach, I, I had to be enrolled in my special ed program too. Mm -hmm. And that was what, how many more credits you needed. In New York, yeah, you have right. to get some your master's to teach period, but there's these transitional certificates that allow you to do it while you're teaching. So it was like thrown into the deep end. And I remember three or four days a week, it was commuting and finishing the grad program oh, uh, yeah. in, in, in New York. That's so wild. what did you, you teach? Know, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Hyann. 
Yeah. What did you teach when you were in Brooklyn? Sorry. Yeah. So I taught, I taught in a growing middle and high school. It was an all girls public school. There aren't many of them. And it was part of a mm-hmm. urban assembly network. There are about 20 or so schools that get some nonprofit additional support, but they're still fully public schools. And, you know, I, I taught seventh, eighth and ninth grade students with learning disabilities. And so I was there, um, you know, school, basically dad, their parental figure throughout the day, trying to keep my students on track and advocate for them and have oh. a lot. I had a, Basically co-teaching math, co-teaching English mostly, and then trying to pop in and support students who, I think this came up in in other podcasts too, have so many like vastly different and a higher need than you Mm -hmm. were set up to provide. So this feeling of always just sort of like trying to tread water in, in, in advocating for them. Yeah, yeah. And so you work because I know on Stephanie's podcast, she was mentioning that like, basically, SPED services are really like co teach inclusion throughout New York. And so that was your experience just as that special education provider. Exactly. I think I mean, the way that the federal legislation is interpreted by some of these states, the other thing is, I have a legal background now and a policy background. Mm -hmm. So I try to think about the macro because and then reflecting when I was in the classroom, I didn't have an idea about those things. It was, oh, you give me the IEP from the last year or a kid transfers in and then it's literally, I always saw some outrageous stuff, right? Like things where it was just copy and pasted IEPs. Yes. From, and that was just normal practice. And I was there actually before they transitioned to a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, five millions of dollars of contracts to get everything digitized. Mm-hmm. And they have a wow. system for that now. But um, yeah, I remember it just being a feeling of uh, being sort of enraged the whole time as a, a teacher of students with learning disabilities. Um, and yeah, I can talk <laughs> about any of that if you want. I have like so many questions, like, but <laughs> I'm like, no, nah, I don't want so many, so many, but so did you right off the bat, like in, when you did teach for America, you automatically started working with special ed. That's right. So actually okay. in, in TFA, one of the things where like during that time where they were having a hard time placing students because of the recession, mm-hmm. a lot of the public fully public schools were not hiring. They had hiring freezes. Mm-hmm. So I remember in 2007 to 2010, there was a real hard time across the country. And that's when actually the the charter school movement sort of took off there because they were mm-hmm. able to hire more folks. And I was l- lucky in terms of my ideology. I was in a, a public, fully public school. And that if you check the box to teach special education or ESL, uh, English as a second language, yeah. the language learners, I forget what they were calling it at the time, you had a better shot of getting in and getting placed yeah. wow. through TFA. And also, Got of course, it. science science and math was, was higher, like higher right. priority. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so before I get into like all some of the stuff, you said that now you have like a legal background. So what are you doing right now? Yes. Yeah, so um, for over 10 years, I worked in different offices in the New York City public school system um, in the central mm-hmm. bureaucracy. And it's this massive bureaucracy. Uh, I know Steph covered it earlier, too. But for those who haven't listened to that one, you know, New York City public schools is the largest school system mm-hmm. by far. It's almost double the second largest. So you think about it just in pure amount of students. Right. It was, it's still about a million students, 1800 schools. And like 100,000, like so many employees. When I was, the last project I was working on, we had to train as many employees of the school system as possible. And there are 140,000 employees of the Department of Education in New York City. So just the scale is massive. If you think about any suburban district, I know in Houston, it's pretty big too, but in in areas it's fairly big. But like, like yeah, not, I mean, nothing, everything pales in comparison. If you think about 
any yeah. even mid-range city is like a tiny mm -hmm. fraction of the amount of schools that are in New York. There are over 40 districts. And I worked with a lot of those superintendents and superintendents are in charge of anywhere from 25 to over 40 schools each. And there are wow. 40 of those superintendents in the system. In New absolutely York, insane. public schools is yes. what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, just oh. I didn't answer the question. Basically, uh, my background was I worked in that bureaucracy for over 10 years. I was lucky enough to like be able to create programs, work on equity related programs, do a lot of trainings and workshops for folks across the city. And then I've recently just uh, left my position there this early this fall and I'm consulting now and I'm working with a bunch of really great orgs. And before that, I was able to you know, get a law degree at CUNY Law um, wow. with a focus on education and civil rights. And then before that, focus on public policy and public administration. So I was just like working the whole time and trying to learn as much as I could as I was working, which I was very grateful I was able to do that. Yeah, no, this is actually amazing. And I hope you have a full couple hours blocked off. We have a ton of questions. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have so many questions. I'm New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker at heart, so maybe I I speak really quickly, and I know podcast you can go like times two. I'm a pretty fast talker, so we could get through more, you know. Yeah, no, we're gonna do a part one, that two, is three. Wild. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have to. Before okay. we go into our second question, I do want to go back just really quickly. Okay, so Teach for America, you said you had started with that org when you were still in school. What? How long were you working with Teach for America to be able to go in and start teaching? Like, what was the yeah. What was the prep for you through that? It's it's changed a lot, but one, I I believe the prep when I was when I went through the system was entirely inadequate for new teachers. Mm -hmm. Again, their entire premise because I was kind of marketing them on campus to my friends when I was a senior in in college. It was that like TFA is this elitist, like we're we're gonna get the brightest and best folks really recruit hard at like Ivy League schools, these really selective schools across the country. And there's this prestige, this layer of prestige that's in the program, which honestly is not a terrible idea if you want folks to have an experience in public schools and understand you know, how poverty impacts the experiences of folks, all of that. But it was always this twofold, you're going to make a difference for the time that you're there. And if you choose to lead education, we need leaders in business and law and everywhere gotcha. else that can advocate for school. So that's the whole premise of it. Even that premise, you could have some disagreement with, right? Like what the mm -hmm. trend is pretty obvious around the rise of TFA that a lot of folks would go. And I, I'm in that boat too, to be, to be frank, only teach for a few years, leave mm -hmm. for somewhere else. It's kind of like that stepping stone thing. And then what that does to communities, what that does to students who already go to schools with really high turnover, not, not great. So a lot of criticism yeah. in addition to the criticisms that happen that I actually was like, lodging against TFA when I was uh, when I was working with them uh, about how they just align themselves with this growing privatization, grow growing mm -hmm. charter movement um, without being critical of, of what that was doing. So I did it for two years. So the TFA works where like you make a two-year commitment mm -hmm. and then you're still an employee of the school system that they place you in or the charter network or wherever they place you in. And so you're mm -hmm. not really paid. They facilitate you getting the degrees or whatnot or whatever you need, the credentials. And then they kind of supposed to give you support. And what it was, was think about like, for those of us who've attended undergrad in a four year setting, it's like you finish and then you're trying to apply for jobs that summer. They have this six week crash course where they have all these, you live there. It's this boot camp, And then they would bus you to different schools to basically learn to teach summer schools. Also horrible experience for, mm -hmm. for 
summer school students who like you have brand new people who have no idea what they're doing and then yeah. that's that's what enables you to then in the fall you literally are just like any other you're, you're a first year teacher, teacher you're, wow. you're there yeah that's wow wild. that's what i always talk about even so i went to a four-year university here in texas and i felt adequately prepared and then i remember my first i tell high end this all the time i'm like my poor kids the first like two years i taught i was awful it was so bad i was unprepared and i did deaf education and so like special ed and ieps oh. i'm like my iep goals were awful my plaps terrible like there was just so much that i look back on now and i think yeah. and i like I would love to take the time. Hi, and this is our ne our next venture. Is I want to create like a teacher preparation program that actually does cover all the things these sped teachers need to know because it's such a huge job that you just don't realize everything that you're getting into until you're literally thrown into it. And then yeah. this is like the lives of kids, right? And so that just is really a lot. So yeah, I don't know. So interesting. I didn't have that. My grad school actually, I feel like kind of did prepare me. So my background's in speech pathology. Mm -hmm. And I just remember one and, and and I shouldn't say it was like all the professors, but I remember one of the the teachers that I had, she was like very much like this, I'm gonna teach you real world stuff. Like you're gonna mm -hmm. like this is what public schools do. This is like and, and it was I and it's like it's funny because like when you're sitting there, you're not really you're you're listening, but you're not understanding because you don't have it like firsthand. But then I remember like all of those things she said and I would go to the district. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's what she was talking about. And so I, I do feel like I was somewhat prepared, but I don't Bailey and I talked about this in the last podcast. I wasn't prepared administration wise. I, I do feel like I had mm -hmm. such a good mentor that like was able to pass that baton to me. Like and I think that that she did a really good job. But then nobody prepares you for like the political like, let's play these games kind of thing. And right. that's interesting that everybody do you feel like you were prepared after teaching for three years going in straight into administration or central? So it's interesting, because I would never be I would never feel I was prepared to go into like an admin at a school mm -hmm. over the last 15 years, I've built really great relationships and learned a lot from administrators at many schools. But yeah. still, I don't feel like I have enough teaching experience and, and experience in a building to be effective there. I think I was prepared to do what I did directly after school, which was mm -hmm. I was supporting, you know, federal grant funded program where we were cool. working with um, what they used to call it night school in New York City, public schools. And it was it's now called young adult borough centers, which I think are an amazing program. And they're for yeah. students who are under credited and over age. And a lot of them have their own families and they're working yeah. jobs. And they're basically night schools from about five to nine. And, I was just, and my job was like, hey, Jeremy, there's this job. It, it pays better than as a teacher, but that wasn't my incentive. It was, I want to see what's out there. And you're going to just go around the five boroughs all over the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens and support these young adult borough centers in this. There was, it was like a gamified digital literacy course. And then we also no. gave a lot of computers to students. So I was like, oh, this sounds great. And then it, that started the door opening for me in terms of like, wow, I, I have the ability now to get paid and then see that that year, I think I saw yeah. 30 or schools. The next year, I was in different programs where I was supporting another 40 or 50 schools. And then over time, I was like, I've seen hundreds of different different school communities and what and works and work and observing teachers and understanding the politics. Um, so that was always interesting to, to me. Yeah, so, that's so amazing. No, I wasn't prepared to be an administrator. But over time, I felt like I was prepared to advocate at Central for more equitable policies, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I am. What? Go ahead. I was going to say, I'm going to skip our second question because I have more questions about this. (laughs) (laughs) No, go for it. Go for it. Skip that question. Yeah. Okay. So you started out with this, like, um, obviously young adult learning through the borough, the young adult boroughs um, in night school. And then you said you've done a bunch of things at Central. So like, I guess kind of walk us through that experience. Cause I, I know you were there for 10, you said 10 years. Yeah. Over 10 years. So I would, yeah, yeah I did 15 years at New York city public schools. It used oh, to be called yeah. the New York city board of education. And then it was the department of education. And now they're rebranding to New York city public schools. They're always trying to market it. And it's because it's so political, right? New mayor, new chancellor, yeah. new thing yeah. themes. Right. Um, and I was just finished writing an article um, that's going to be published soon about like, the rise and fall of equity in New York City public schools and how Adam oh. in this moment was a part of, which I think hopefully we'll get to, we were doing some really exciting work around equity and racial justice and it mm-hmm. has fell off. And it was also part of the reason why I was like, this is not the right place for me at right this now. time. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I guess I'll go really quickly because it's it's in the yeah. weeds, a lot of different positions. So after that gamified learning uh, grant funded program, I did that for a year, the funding ended right so a lot of these grants whether it's federal or state grants they just are for a certain amount of time you do what you can with the money and there's no like more of it right so it ends mm-hmm. i then was on a very small team where we got a grant from actually um mayor bloomberg at the time who you know the philanthropist and billionaire he was started mm-hmm. he just funded a lot of different programs so city hall in this in new york city really expanded because with his own money he's basically bruce wayne right he, he would just like create yeah. I'm going to just yeah. put 10 million dollars into this new thing. So part of that funding was this in, this this intersection between the mayor's office of media and entertainment and New York City public schools and I was able to help create uh, a a program called Digital Ready with uh, with a few colleagues where it was based off some some academic research from a, comp- a nonprofit called Jobs for uh, for the Future and cool. I was in charge of the mastery learning component so it was like competency education or mastery learning um different sort of tech and helping schools think about uh, student-centered learning. So there's a lot of like some research on that. So I did that for a couple of years. And then when that money ran out or in the middle of that program, we had some changes. A colleague and I proposed to create our own program that was really focused on competency education and the intersection Mm -hmm. of competency education and culturally responsive education. So like, why would you do grading and feedback differently? Not just because, but because it's actually more equitable that if you don't, think about how you grade and how your biases are actually at play when you have like relationships with certain students or families, then you're, you know, you maybe you are contributing to some inequities. So we got that funded and that's, that program is still running now, which is really exciting. I found it, it was called, um, well, at the time it was the mastery collaborative. Now it's called the competency collaborative. And so we built it out from a learning group. It was like 25 schools at first. Now it's almost 100 schools across New York City who share resources, who visit each other, who do site visits. And they're just trying to do um, competency education with a cultural responsiveness lens. Yeah. So, then, so that, awesome. that was, I don't know oh how many years. That was, like my, that was like my child with my colleague, Joy Nolan, who's incredible. And we built a team out. I was at that point, a young, I was one of the younger folks like across Central in that office that was in charge of a team. So that was really exciting. And then with That's that, awesome. I... I went to the office of equity and access where one mm-hmm. of my mentors and um, you know, people that taught me so much at the DOE wanted me to come on board his team um, with the new administration, because there, this is where there was a push for equity. Uh, we had the largest scale implicit bias awareness workshops for any public school system in the history wow. of the country. 
So we had over $20 million from the city to do what I was saying before, lead every single employee of the Department of Ed through a five-hour workshop where we were going to talk about implicit bias. And so we did that. Yeah. There's a whole story behind that. And, and then when that finished up, I, I led a, a lot of the work around cultural responsiveness at the DOE before I departed. Left. Wow. And then like That's all incredible. in the middle of this, you also got a law degree. Yes, that was a three and a half that. years. Yeah, three and a half. Thank well, you for yeah. making us all feel like crap. Well, Bailey, it's, we it's, it together. I think you were you were probably feeling better than I was at the time, not like crap. You were, I was, I was, oh I. It was definitely a sacrifice of like you know, it's it's go to work, finish work, go right to school, go to bed, yeah. and repeat. That was repeat. a lot of a lot of my time. Yeah, wild. Like I did my master's program. The my the same. Like I started my master's when I started my first year of teaching. And I, I, it was like a master's in, you know, deaf studies and education and all that. Um, so not a law degree. And I wanted to die. I think I cried every single day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two years. So I can't imagine it's, like working on what you were working on in such a like huge place while also trying to get a law degree. I think it's part of why like, moving to California right now. I'm like, I'm enjoying some time where it's not like you have something to do or something that's due every minute because yeah. you know that was that was three and a half years of that but then like a couple years before that it was two years of that because i was in another program and then when i started with teach america i was in a program too so it was all, yeah, I, I, i've been in academia while in education more years than i haven't so yeah, yeah it was exhausting <laughs> Oh my, oh my gosh that is exhausting okay so i i had a question you said something about there was like 40 superintendents so here in Texas, it's just one for like a large school district. Mm -hmm. So because yeah. so are you saying like New York City, it's almost like their superintendents are like principals or like, how is that? How does that work? They're like the they're the supervisors of the principals. So because the system is so vast, if you're a principal of a school, there was a school, small school movement in the in the early 2000s and under Bloomberg, okay. there were the really big what we call dinosaur schools, the schools that have a real long history. They've been around for some of them hundred years. Some of those schools were about four to six, 5,000 students where they started breaking mm -hmm. them up and using some of those big campuses and then cutting them up by floor. Like you learned from Stephanie, she was in a school where like, she just had one of the four floors and it had under a thousand yeah. students. Mm -hmm. um, I understand. So okay. each, of, each of those schools have their own administration, their own schools, they act independently and they're part of one of the 40 or so districts. And then the superintendents have their own teams superintendents, deputy superintendents are there like second wow. and third. And then there's also a lot of support staff that focus on support in all of these different areas for those schools. And so the superintendents are like any given other small city might be like one or two of those districts, but New York has right. many, many, many of them. And That's they wild. report to the chancellor? Is that how there's I different, there's different like schemas and the, the schemas of who reports to who changes it often changes based on who the mayor is and who the chancellor right. is. Right. Yes. And so okay. there's some stuff okay. that is stable where like there's going to be a hierarchy of command, a chain of command on who makes what policy. And, you know, if you study, if we've studied policy before too, like there's different theories around like, does it incrementally change or is it harder to just like start from zero and say like every single yeah. office, every single support, you have to justify your existence every budget year. It's yeah. I usually there's some stability there. Like there are folks who've worked at Central for many administrations because even if their office or where they sit in the hierarchy changes, they have those like civil servant credentials where they, they'll just apply for another job under someone else. But it mm -hmm. is based on who's appointed 
and it's very it's just very political yeah yeah it's political okay i want to ask about like your equity so so what did you what was like the biggest thing that you did whenever you were doing you were pushing that because i know stephanie had talked about how there was inequities obviously where you lived and whatnot so i kind of want to dive into that yeah that this is where like my part is this is why i do the work it's the reason why I went to all the school. It's re- like I, the people I've met in, in the equity work are the best people, right? Because it's not about mm-hmm. anything but urgently fighting for more just systems, right? And saying, I know what's happening and what's happening is not, not okay. Um, there, I mean, we can go in a lot of different angles for like what inequity means, but the work that we were doing was really focused on racial equity first, thinking about patterns of disparity and disproportionality that exists in all kinds of data and even data that you might not think about, right? You, you might say test scores or attendance, or those are basic ones, but we're even thinking just anecdotal data, like how much do your students feel belonging in the school? How much do students feel like their culture is reflected and respected and understood by the folks who, you know, care for them in, in their school day? A lot of that work around the, the and nationally, this is the case too, the, the big discrepancy between who racially and ethnically make up the staff and the teacher and, and educator workforce versus who are the yeah. communities that are served. And then where are those cultural differences um, sort of like coming to a head and, and creating inequities? All those things um, were central to what we were doing. And we were, we tried to have a strategic way that we focused on it. We didn't have a huge team that the system is so big, but only for the couple of years I was there, um, a few years ago, did we actually get funding and support to do work around equity where the Office of Equity and Access went from about 30 people in the Department of Ed for the giant system to almost 100. So it became a, a, a wow. real big focus, still not enough. But um, I guess in summary, our, our strategy was to do workshops where we were really going to connect as human beings with as many employees as possible to say, look, before we jump into being anti-racist, before we jump into some things that might make people feel uncomfortable, let's just be on the same page about the fact that every single person has biases. Every single person, even if it's not intentional, makes mistakes and and creates Mm -hmm. harm. And we only know what we know. So how do we connect with everyone to say, look, let's, let's, let's talk about how we have gender bias. Let's talk about sexual orientation. Let's talk about race your students are thinking about these things all the time. So it's important that we reflect on our fallibility as educators. So that was one piece, which was this interpersonal sort of internal work that we wanted folks to start with. It's not the be all end all. It's not the silver bullet. You can, obviously you can attend a workshop and then say I'm done and then be the same, right? So we we didn't want that, but we did feel like it was worthwhile. And then separately, we wanted to, to work with leadership from the top down to say, what what's the accountability processes look like for you to start making inroads at fixing some of these inequitable patterns that exist. And the, the preliminary areas we were focusing on with, with superintendents and principals and school leadership teams were disparities in suspension and discipline rates, which are vast right across the yep. country and in New York Absolutely. city, even if the school community is more homogenous, like if you're like, Oh, all of my students are black and Hispanic Latino. Even with that, you see disparities where black and um, Hispanic, mostly black boys are disciplined Mm -hmm. at four to five times the rate for the same infractions. And people are like, Mm -hmm. how is this happening? So it was uh, discipline and suspensions was a big one, a special ed referral rates, which we can all talk about, right? And you look at the patterns cut by gender and race and it's appalling, right? Certain communities can understand how to navigate a system to get those resources and then get get their kids and their students declassified from those services and others 
might just be stuck with labels of you have a learning disability when it's really some sort of cultural behavioral issue that the educators don't understand. And so those were two big ones. And the last one was gifted and talented, which is the, in New York City, we say always the third rail, right? You can't talk Mm -hmm. about gifted and talented and what gifted means. You can only sort of, right, like have a tense conversation about what it means to say, oh, well, I, I think that all of the all of the East Asian and white students being in the gifted classes, like disproportionately, and black and brown students being in in the the regular classes, it's just the way it is, right? So a lot of heavy conversations about those those topics. That's insane. Wow. I will say, like, what is um, the word comforting is not the right word because it's actually just really sad. But I, as you were talking about like disproportionality and looking at, you know, obviously different communities and considering like black boys, Hispanic kids are are often like suspended or disciplined at a higher rate for similar infractions. Or I think even about like special education referrals for um, here in Texas, we call it like ED, emotional disturbance and all those things, like such a high rate. And you can see those differences in various communities. It's so sad to think that like it doesn't matter whether you're in texas or new york or la or wherever these things are happening nationwide and so like nationally we have this issue we have this problem we have these things happening and just it takes so much work and groundwork and i think kind of to your point of having these workshops and connecting with people like self reflection and work to look at how am I impacting this? How, what is my part in this? And then how do I help to change it? And that's just such a huge shift to move through that. I, I don't know. It's, it's wild. we were just looking at our disproportionality data in my district, like two weeks ago and having the same conversation. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, that's wild. That's wild. Hey, and I, I saw you were going to say something. Sorry. No. So I don't, I just was going to say it's, it's interesting. I have so many thoughts and that it's such a good conversation, but so I work um, closely with this um, nonprofit organization called the fellowship initiative. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, Jeremy, but um, they have a chapter in New York. And so it's an organization funded by JP Morgan and Mm -hmm. it's a cohort of just black and Brown babies, um, high school students. And the purpose of it is to follow them essentially for three years, um, provide them the supports to graduate high school and then to have post-secondary success. So then after they graduate, they get, connected to another nonprofit that kind of follows them and make sure that they have resources. Well, yesterday I was, um, we were doing interviews with them and we were, we asked one of, and, and some of them, again, like sophomores sometimes are a little immature and like need some time to kind of get their thoughts. But one boy was so just incredibly, he got it right. And um, the question was, why do you think these programs are so important for minorities? And he even, he said, it's important because everybody knows that like, if you're black or if you're Hispanic, you got to work 10 times harder, 10 times harder, anything, you're going to be discriminated no matter what. And you just got to work harder. And, and he said like, and I, I was like tearing up because he said like, I just love this program because it's giving me it, they support me. And I know like if, if I get discriminated against, like I'm, I can come here and I can be supported. And so like, it's just, it goes back to your comment about how you say like, kids are in school and, and they are going to see those things. And they, and that's what they do see when they're at school is like this um, maybe some bias or whatever they see it and they, and they think about it. And so, yeah, I just, that was the first thing that came to mind. Um, Sounds like a great, great organization. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. And 
So Houston has a chapter with 40, 40 boys. And so it's going to be kind of cool oh, to wow. see them, to see them graduate. And, and they just had a cohort just graduate last May and they're all in college and it's been really nice to see, but it, it's special to hear them also see like how important it is for them to take the opportunities that are presented to them. Um, so yeah, but it, it, it hurt me because it was like, Oh, he's right. Right. Like, he's going to get discriminated against and he does have to work harder. So that part was just, you know, heart wrenching, but anyways, um, yeah. I'm going to get off my soapbox. Uh, <laughs> we love know. those. We get on them a yeah, lot. Yeah, we do. But it just, it all ties We're together. Like, like what you're talking about and just it, like what great yeah. work that is. Like, I don't, I don't know if our, the districts that we've ever been in Bailey take like an emphasis to do that. I don't know. We've and if worked- they have, I just don't know. We've worked with actually before, like our office, the office of equity and access actually met with Houston ISD. We had, I've traveled to California to see what other folks are doing. And, and at its best, people say, well, New York City is this progressive Mecca, for lack of better words, in education. If, if you can do it there, then like it can trickle through. I think it's true in some ways and in other ways, not so much, right? The political environment is, is such that it, it, it can waver, right? Like we did some really great work at one period of time. We didn't really change any of the, accountability structures, right? The ways in which superintendents and principals and teachers are evaluated. Like we didn't really make concrete change in policy to make sure that we were we were making progress in terms of equity, right? Mm-hmm. We can do the hearts and minds stuff. But then again, the support for that also kind of faltered when people are not, and especially when you think about it in terms of bureaucracy, as you should, we're, we're taxpayer um, public servants, right? We're working off of the taxpayer dollar and we should be able to have to, sort of say, well, what did those, what did that money go to? How do you justify that type of professional development in this way or that way? So I understand that part. It's just yeah. when, when you start thinking about equity as this extra side thing that you do, that's totally distinct and separate from like achieving better academic scores, you miss the whole point, right? All of that mm-hmm. academic research is saying, particularly in communities of color, particularly with that discrepancy between like who is teaching and who's not, that if we're not making our lesson plans engaging, if we're not making our school communities welcoming, if we're not being culturally responsive, we are failing. And it's because we're not doing equity. Like it's because we're not Mm -hmm. being real about what's happening, which is that we're seeing it as right. Like we're just filling these minds with all this knowledge and it's not about connection or it's not about acknowledging the poverty that so many of our students are facing and that like, we can't, we can't solve all those problems in, in one little school or community it has to be more comprehensive. So it's, it, there's a lot to it. And also I think at a certain time, New York had a really great model that I think others can learn from. And then for the next administration in New York, I think they need to, um, you know, go back to what they were doing a few years ago. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So what, what happens? Like you, you mentioned that like when, when grant money works out, like stops, does that mean the program just disappears? Well, like, yeah. Like yeah, so something like that. Like a lot of a lot of it, it, it I guess the best way to, to say it is in like the giant billions and billions and billions of dollars of budget for the New York City Department of Education because it is so big. There, are, you know, of course there's some bloat, of course there's some some areas where you're like how are you spending that much on that, right? And so every year as part of the budget process just like all these other cities, you're going to get a certain amount of state, certain amount of federal money, but then the city council and the and the, the executive, the mayor in, in the case of New York, has to come together on an agreement around a full city budget, and a portion of that budget is going to be 
um, the education department. So there's all these lobbyists and all these advocates that are going to push for their programs to be funded or these to be expanded or don't cut these, right? And so what happens every year is that usually the mayor or the city council is going to say like, we propose this is our budget and it's going to leave out a bunch from the year before. And then other folks are going to get really upset and angry and say, absolutely not. You can't cut this. This is horrible. And it's this budget battle every single year and some of the stuff is kind of non-negotiable you're going to leave the baseline really big programs that are important other administrations for instance de blasio uh mayor de blasio uh, right after bloomberg came in and his big education thing like i don't think he was the education mayor but he came in saying i want to do universal pre-k we don't have Mm -hmm. it right now right now everyone's paying out of pocket in in a a lot of places around the country that was just not happening right the amount of logistics and financial commitment you need to do to offer a free universal pre-kindergarten program at that scale was massive right and so he was able to implement that it is a thing now that if the next mayor or someone else said i'm eliminating this upk people would lose it right right now we actually want to get to 3k because we realize like the amount that every family and and particularly poor communities have to pay out of pocket or the amount that that will actually impact the economy because people aren't able to get jobs because they don't have support and child care right and child care and it's and it's for for development uh, youth development right in early childhood that's like a slam dunk of a policy that a lot of places should be doing Mm -hmm. it's a good example of I worked on a lot of very small programs so if you look at the budget people would barely know they existed and so you had to do the small advocacy every year to say like, can we get this so. amount? Can we keep it going? And then there's different administrations are open or not open to different amounts of private and outside funding. So like you might mm. just have a, a mayor and a chancellor come in and say, we actually want to partner with corporations and, you know, partnerships. And then you can take in more grants to then offer different PD. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's happening in different cities. That's, ha- that's the politi- how the political process is like informing what programs and supports are mm-hmm. even available to schools. Yeah. You know, and I think like, hi, and this is my perspective, just as I'm, I'm listening to you talk, Jeremy, like the, the politics component of it, hi, and I dealt with that at such a different level because we worked in special ed. So like that grant funding, that money, yes, yeah. it changed every year in terms of the amount. Right. But we knew we were going to have it. And we knew like, we're going to get grant funded to provide special ed services every single year. Um, And so this, like what you're talking about is a totally different thing of like, we have to lobby, we have to advocate, we have to like, basically work politically to ensure that the mayor and the chancellor and whoever else is going to provide us with this funding is going to set that aside. And that's just something I've never, like, I personally have not worked in that in education. And it's, it's funny to me because I complain all the time about like politics and special ed and how frustrating it is and the bureaucracy and this and that. And this is just a whole different level of that, that I do not think I could handle. I I could not handle that. That was really crazy. It's really, really complicated. The other thing I was going to mention before is in terms of like special education law and the federal legislation, it's some of the strongest in all of education. So Mm -hmm. one of the biggest avenues to have advancements in the supports that students with learning disabilities need is is litigation. Like it just is. We need a lot more lawyers and a lot more people that are like, look, I'm it's not that I want to be a thorn, but if a student or a group of student or a school community are not receiving the number of special education teachers, supports, paras, OT, PT, all of that. If it's not happening, almost every single one of these public districts is massively open to litigation and they're not going to win. So what happens yeah. at a huge scale in New York City is that they are settling. They are settling 
almost every single case when they're getting sued because a parent is saying, I know my rights. My, my student has this IEP. They need to get these services. And the, the school that, that you're having my student attend is not providing that. You give some evidence and the system has their, their up against the wall and they bleed money and, and settle cases. And a lot of the time that those families are then directing that, that money that they're getting for their student, which they deserve, to a private school or to some other specialized school. I was gonna say, Instead yeah. of us actually investing in those supports, like as a and doing system. what we're supposed to, yeah, and doing what we're exactly. supposed to. But we have a big yeah. tool. So if you, yeah, I, I think having someone that is into like you know suing districts along special ed violations, it's a. It, I think it should be an even bigger, um, you know. Yeah. Well, and I think the thing too that you're talking about because I mean when we go back to equity and we're looking at you know different students and different lifestyles, like there are those families that can do that, they do that. And they're able to, like you said, take that money, send it to send their kid to a private school. And like that student, that kid is okay. There's this whole group of kids that we're looking at whose parents are, you know, do not have degrees, do not have jobs, do not have the ability to get a lawyer and, and have this litigation and have this opportunity. And so those are the kids that you see year after year after year, this perpetuating cycle of not getting the services, not getting the supports, not making progress, and then they graduate. And then their post-secondary life is not what it should be um, based on the supports that we had said we were providing this whole time. And so I completely agree with you. Like that litigation component needs to happen. It's, there needs to be somebody that can do it for those kids, like for everyone, for yeah. all kids, you kind know, class is... action-y things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is that why you so, got into law? This... Sorry. Jeremy, is that why you got this, got into law with because it's, it's, of this or? It's probably not the reason I feel like, so my whole reason why I even applied to law school was that I wanted to um, think about how to leverage the law to advocate for civil rights. And of course, education was like where my career was. So what, what the intersection between education and civil rights and, and policy, because I was also interested in how do mechanisms of power sustain and maintain inequity. Um, so understanding the legal and policy components of that while also being like, well, I work in schools too. So there's an element of like, what's actually happening and not wanting to be too theoretical and too, oh, well, like these theories and these academics say this or that, where we know like, you know, Steph will, will check me too. It's like, that doesn't mean anything for, you know, the experiences of my students. So just trying to mm-hmm. balance all that with the goal of being able to have influence and navigate those, you know, channels of power to, to advocate for more just policy. That's my, that was the goal. Yeah. That's awesome. So Jeremy, we're going to get kind of back on track with our questions because <laughs> so you, you've talked a lot you've talked a lot about like just kind of your passion with equity, getting into law, all that. And now you are no longer working for the department of Ed in New York. You're living in LA and you're doing some consulting. So are you like, what is your consulting looking like? Are you tying in equity? Are you working with districts? Like what are you doing now? And how is that working? Is all equity focus. I mean, that's, what's nice is that being in a giant bureaucracy where sometimes the priorities shift so much that the biggest obstacles are not the schools or superintendents or educators you're working with that they're all like we want you to come in more like we need coaching we need supports we need workshops it's it's the folks in power who Mm -hmm. don't have moral clarity around doing equity work who are too scared of what will happen if they don't stand up for their trans students because they don't understand 
right? Like the state of what it means to be a student who doesn't identify along a gender binary right now, because they, they feel like the press or the negative consequences of standing up and saying Black Lives Matter is too scary. Um, so let's just put this on a back burner. So the obstacles were within on why we couldn't work to, you know, protect our most vulnerable students. Now I'm able to work with a bunch of different nonprofits who work uh, in schools in a contracting sort of relationship where I, I built out a lot of my own workshops. I started doing this when I was still working for the DOE, to, but for, to be honest, in New York City public schools, like most people weren't ready for it, right? You're not ready for right. even intro to race and racism. I tried to be as much of a um, student of the history of racial science and pseudoscience um, to, to build into my workshops something that was engaging, that people can understand more about their own racial and ethnic identity and how it connects to their work as educators. So that's the, the work I really love to do. I have a whole session on Asian American identity and history and, and cross-racial solidarity, right? Like how do we think about the changes in what it means to be Asian and also be on the right side of justice? So a lot of work on immigration and um, just like building out workshops and doing adult learning. So I do a lot of that. And I'm doing some policy work and some like program development and, and helping uh, program managers in, in, in certain advocacy orgs, uh, you know, manage their programs because that was that was the work I was doing for the DOE. So I, uh, I'm able to work with a few orgs that I really, really respect and do work that I love. And I want to write more and, and be more like this is an exciting opportunity, too, because I, I want to be able to advocate and, and be more like public because before it felt a little bit more like. You kind of have to look over your shoulder. You don't want to mm -hmm. represent your bosses and, and office in a negative way, even though um, you might not agree with some of the policies. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in terms of, so looking at the work you're doing now, where do you feel, and then I hope I asked this question the right way, but like, where do you feel you're even being like pushed or stretched in like your own knowledge, your own thinking, just kind of like you said, like being a learner and continuing to grow and learn yourself, where are you seeing now in this work, that growth, that learning for you personally? Well, I think it's nice to be a, con a consultant a little bit in terms of like folks are, they have enough interest in like your work before or whatever the organization's work mm -hmm. that they're actually paying you separately to come in and do workshops or, or research, or we do a lot, some data work with schools. Um, so that's nice. Like you can just be like, well, yeah. if you don't like what I have to say, then you don't have to work with us. Right. You can be right. even more honest, even though I felt like we were really honest, even when we were working within when I was working within central, but some of the most challenging work are places where like, you know, especially after the murder of George Floyd, um, 2020, we had COVID and then we had a lot of well-intentioned sort of more, uh, let's say folks who are in more work and live in more homogenous places. And for a lot of, I can speak for my communities, for a lot of white folks, for a lot of East Asian folks, you know, you think about like, who am I, who am I closest with? I'm closest with people who look like me, who have similar experiences to me. So we do a lot of this work in implicit bias awareness, but I say that to say when that happened, everyone, as you, as we all know, put out these statements saying we are against racism. We are anti-racist. We are committed to equity, whatever that meant. Mm -hmm. And yet nobody defined it. The, the leadership roles across DEI everywhere went dry. A lot of the black women who were hired at that time, even in corporate America, if you just saw like Netflix, Disney, all these places, those people have all either resigned or been pushed out of their, their positions. And so it's now it's like, clearly people weren't taking it seriously. You wanted right. to commit without actually doing the work. 
And so this work is challenging. It's, it's emotionally draining. I think for me, it's less so than my black and Latino and indigenous colleagues, because I could say, look, I still feel like I have a good sense of self and my ego is intact, even though I could be critical of the privileges and the way that people perceive me and, and that mm -hmm. I'm either listened to more. And that's also part of my other identities, right? As like a cisgender person being like, I never, I never said I was cisgender before I met and connected with trans folks who just saying you're cisgender makes a big difference. It doesn't change me and how mm -hmm. I see it just makes me feel more empathetic and understanding of someone else's experience. Like it's not hard. And so doing that work, trying to be vulnerable with folks around like my journey and say, look, to be anti-racist, what do we need to do as folks who have more privilege, um, not just pay lip service or this anti-woke stuff, like actually talk about it, right? Like it's real, it's just life or death for folks. How do we risk something uh, to, to achieve better result? It's not gonna happen by writing a commitment statement and then doing nothing else. And so I think the most challenging mm -hmm. stuff is getting real about that with leaders, like getting leaders who've worked for 40 years and are, have done great work to feel like they could still learn and grow around equity mm -hmm. to acknowledge harms that they've committed and say, I want to do better instead of just putting up a defense wall and say, you know, like you're critiquing me. I'm so fragile. Like, like that, that's the work that's hard. And then I think the hardest out of the work I've done recently has been with uh, unions and anti-racism. So mm -hmm. how do we get elected unions who represent different constituencies who have various ideologies politically, how do you get them to actually be, um, equitable and anti-racist and and are those things at odds right i love unions i support my dad as a union leader and at the same time unions are about making sure that you have a membership base but mm -hmm. if you go and say we're going to be anti-racist and someone that membership base is like oh that's a little bit too much for me that's a huge uh it's a huge i guess problem and, and it's one where like i am very challenged in how to move people in that way yeah oh my gosh that is incredible D so like just based on like a lot of the things that you're saying is like when did advocacy start with you like do you feel like it's always you've just always have seen it or like was it when you went to teach for america that you started to kind of see disparities or i guess it was less become so empathetic I, th I think it was more of like i grew up as a as person who's mixed race i grew up going to hebrew school but being the kid who they're didn't look like all the other like white Jewish kids. So this Asian looking person. And then with my Chinese family, right, it was, oh, he, that's, he's not really the same. So growing up, even though I was in a bubble where there were a lot of Asian and Jewish folks, because that's just how the town I grew up in was, I, I learned in college and later that like, I already had, there was already like this predisposition to being able to navigate conversations about difference. So I was always like interested in learning that. I remember being in high school and always having an issue with like the Cleveland Indians logo and the tomahawk chop that the Atlanta Braves did. I was a big baseball fan, still am. Like I always was just like angry at it. Like how are people not seeing that this is really harmful and offensive? I don't need to be indigenous myself to know that. So I was always like interested in learning more. Then when I learned about race, ethnicity, gender studies, like I learned about sociology and the study of like human grouping and behavior, that's probably where it started. And then everything since has just radicalized me to the point of like, what's our purpose here? What's our purpose mm -hmm. for me? It's, it's try to use your voice to help others who are suffering, others who are, are not able to navigate these systems. Like how do these systems work? Who's in charge of them? How does the political process and, and the legal, um, like, I guess the legal system, the more I've learned about it, right? It's, it is the tool in which these inequities are sustained. And so unless we are able yeah. to use 
legal uh, means to change those, it's just always, it's, it's going to be the same. So yeah, it's just part of me. And then I think it just has kept, there's been relation. I think also the answer is there have been relationships that I didn't have earlier in my life, right. With folks mm-hmm. who are very different than me that I could say, I grew to care about and love and want to fight for and with that. If I'm in my little bubble, I don't feel the same, right. Think about it. Everyone's been impacted by some sort of trauma in their life, whether it's some disease that someone they knew or, or cancer. And then you become like emotionally connected to it. I got to do something. I got to raise money for it. I think the same goes for especially racial equity for any type of equity where you're like, I care and love about somebody. So that means I'm going to fight for them. I'm going to do whatever I can to advocate. Yeah, absolutely. I, so much. I do think I, too, like, sorry, Hyann. I was no, just going to go. go back really quickly when you were talking about your work that you're doing currently and like pulling in leaders. I think that um, that discomfort is such a challenge. Like I remember even myself back in 2020 and, you know, at the time I was uh, with someone who was um, Hispanic, born in Mexico, came to the States and like just even having those conversations and that discomfort of realizing just like the vast different difference in our experiences. Yeah. Um, like I am a white woman. I have blonde hair and blue eyes. Like I am your typical, you know, and um, just hearing him even share, like, these are some things that have happened to me. This has happened to my parents. This is, if I speak Spanish in public here in Texas, sometimes this happens, you know, and it's so shocking. And then I think that that place of discomfort comes from how have I, whether actively or just subconsciously, not even intending perpetuated this or maybe caused someone harm in this way or did something that made somebody feel this like uncomfortable um, and so like knowing that just from that relationship and even like relationships that I have with friends, taking that to another level of like being a leader in an organization, being like for myself, I'm a director in a special education department. So like, am I impacting my staff? Am I yeah. impacting the people that work for me? Am I causing harm or am I like having these like microaggressions that I don't even realize right. I'm having with them? And if so, how do I, you know? Those are the things that I think, especially when you start to look at it and you start to look inward, it does cause so much discomfort because then you just go back to like, I think of like, you know, like 12 step programs for people who have um, substance abuse or alcohol um, addiction. And and you go back to that phase of like, you have to make amends with people. Like you go back and you think about all the things you've done across your whole life. And there is this feeling of, oh, wow, I'm actually the worst person ever. You know, like Uh I am a terrible. And so you have to sit in that like, awful, horrible, discomforting, just sick feeling. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just like the, the work that you do is like so commendable and so, so incredible, but I'm, I'm also sitting there like, I can see how challenging it would be for you guys to go into those settings and have those conversations with people because for them, they're like, we are not, we are like, I don't feel that way. Yeah. You know, and you so that's to, just you have to have very I think you have to be a very strategic and smart psychological stance on how you present material, right? Because like mm-hmm. there's just human nature is to be defensive. Like you said, if you live your whole life not having to talk about certain topics and all of a sudden people are like, You're a bad person because of things that you didn't even think about, right? Psychologically speaking, it makes sense that that would be really hard. And so I yeah. think it's just being real and like there's a lot of work to be done, but it's to fight that cognitive dissonance, to fight that like idea where, oh, I haven't had to talk about this because almost every part of my identity is def- the, de- the default. I don't have right. to think twice about showing up in different spaces because 
the world treats me the way everyone should be treated. And that I realize mm-hmm. other people aren't treated that way. It does make you feel like, oh, I think that's a lot of that that deep bootstrapping question that I'm writing about and think about a lot, which is like we're fed this what many people have said is a lie, which I believe is a lie that, right? Like this myth of meritocracy that if you just pull yourself off your bootstraps, you'll be great. And it's so deeply ingrained in our culture. And it's like, who does that serve? Right? Because mm-hmm. exactly what you're saying, how many people I've talked to, and even for myself and my family members, for you to say, well, if you're saying that I've harmed other people or that I've had all this privilege, I, I now am questioning my own worth. And yeah. in, instead of saying, well, what can I do to acknowledge that and actually look to change something? So it's not, hurting somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's, and I think also just even tying it back to like students, when you were talking about how culturally we have, whether it be in urban districts or or rural districts, even like you have these students who are sitting in these buildings with people who do not look like them, who do not have the same culture, who do not have the same experiences. And like, I talk a lot, um, even, even just with my own staff of like Maslow's like basic needs, right? Like, you know, there are like four basic things that you need to be able to even like function, you know, food, water, all of that. But then I'm also now looking at this from a lens of like, to really be open to learning, to really be open to, to gaining that knowledge that we're expecting students to gain. Like there's this additional need of like shared experience, shared understanding, and just kind of like connection, right? And how can you truly really connect with a student if you don't understand either that like what you're doing or your own biases is causing a problem, or if you don't understand that experience that they've had. And so um, that's a really heavy lift, Jeremy. That's a Mm -hmm. huge thing that you are trying to do. And I'm just thinking even personally of like, I'm, I support professional development in my own district. There's like 7,000 adults and I'm considering like, how would I even possibly push out, an equity workshop to all 7,000 of them and have these conversations and do these things um, because it's huge. It's huge. And then you're right. There are people who are just like, I'm not here for that today. I'm not, I'm not doing this. I mean, the harder part too, as you just said, in in Texas, in Florida, in other areas, you, it might be impossible or really difficult to even contract and get support to do that type of stuff because it's being outlawed. And I mean, I just think about why is it being outlawed? It's not because you're trying to fight this reverse discrimination. It's because people are very fearful of folks getting more power and getting more of what they deserve, right? Which is a quality education. Like that's, it's just so telling that you would say, we're not going to allow for a certain type of professional development that talks about gender, sexual orientation or race. It's, it's so, for me, it's so clear um, that folks are scared because they're trying to maintain a system that is inequitable. Right. Well, and you're looking too at the legislation, like, Hyann, I don't know if you saw this, obviously we're in Texas, I don't know if you saw this come out early last week, but um, they are, our legislature signed into law, this voucher program, basically of like, when parents decide they don't want their children to be in a public school, they can transfer them to a private school. And then with that student, there's this like voucher that goes with them that pulls directly from public school funding. And so it's like, so bad for public schools, so awful for those yep. communities and those students who need that access, those teachers, those staff. Um, but it was this big topic of discussion of like, why are we taking these public tax dollars that are supposed to go to the public education system and we're going to tie it in and, and connect it to a family sending their child to a private school, a family that already has the means and the ability clearly to afford this private school. And we're going to pull that funding from the public school district, pull it from the students who need that. 
Um, and so it's been a big topic of discussion, like not only within my own district, because, you know, we're near the Capitol, but also just even with friends, with teachers, with people I know of this back and forth of like, yeah, there's, there's, there's parent choice and there's school choice. And then there's the need for public education, you know? And so it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a huge thing. Education seems to be, I know it's, I know it's legislated everywhere, but there's just a different lens of it here right now. I, um, in I do not. Yeah. I, I, I'm saddened by what's happening there and, and, you know, wish I could help more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it also makes me think what just special education on how there's like specific shares just for students zoned in private school as well. Like, I think that's also like, mm-hmm. wow. Right. I mean, and it's, it's interesting too, because the argument for those individuals are, well, I pay tax money and it, again, it, and then it just like opens a can of worms for like all for the sure. other conversations about privilege and, right. oh, it's just a yeah. never ending yeah. cycle almost. Um, yeah. <laughs> So I, so I do have one question before we play our fun game, but what's like one piece of advice you would give to like an educator going into, or somebody that works in equity? Like what's your one piece of advice? Oh, wow. I guess when you said educator, I think about when I was an educator and this is not Mm -hmm. to say don't invest in and feel community with whatever school you're at, but that I remember the feeling of not knowing what else was out there at all right? Like the entire world was my school. The amount of power I felt that my administration had over me as a young educator was so immense that I would just be like so stressed out because I wanted to do the right thing. And I didn't think about, and a lot of educators who moved to different schools reflect on this, right? That like not every place is designed and set up like the current place that you're in, that you could find another community that's, that gels more with your ideology, that has policies and practices that are more connected to like you know, showing up and do and being your best self as an educator um, and not feeling just miserable because the place you're in is, is, is having a hard time. So that's for on the educator, educator side, I would say like the place you're in doesn't have to be the place you'll always be in and that you should be able to feel um, free to like speak your mind and advocate for students. And and that, that's what I would say in terms of the equity piece, I would say organizing is the is the main lever. Right. And so I was always everyone I worked with at New York City public schools, even when I was at Central, would always look at me like, well, Jeremy is just wild. Like he just says, he just says the thing. I can't believe he just said that thing. And they would always just be like this, this like background fear around like retribution, or are you going to get like scolded? The only negative thing that ever happened was like, oh, if I would want like a really high level um, position at some point in the future, maybe my reputation is such that people see me as this troublemaker, right? But in the same way, like we need people like that. And I guess I would just say, don't be afraid to organize with external groups, right? You, what, what are you there for? Are you there to just be a cog and listen to what your boss and, and the heads of things are say? Or are you there to support your students, right? Like what are you going to risk yeah. to protect students, especially when you know morally um, that things are wrong, whether that's in special education, the intersection of racial inequity that persists across every school around the country? How do you connect with grassroots organizations that are doing that advocacy and lend your voice and your time to, to helping that way. Because we know we can't solve these problems by just being the best teachers we can in schools, right? There's all these other issues. So it's, it is intrinsically political. So to be an educator, I feel like I, I, I'm like, why are you, what do you, why do you do what you do? And then how do you team up with others who feel similarly and strongly to, to push for 
um, better. And, and it's never going to be perfect in our lifetimes. Right. But that's, that's this work. That's, yeah. that's equity work. That's anti-racism work. That's just like, we have to just keep pushing it so that that next generation um, is able to do, do more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited because our last, our last question, what we do is we have a random word generator and it's going to generate five words. And hi, Anne is going to share those words with you. And then using those five words, you can use all of them. You can use one, you can use three, whatever. Um, Tell us an education story, like personal to you related (laughs) to these five words, right? So it doesn't have to use all of them. You can pick one, you can pick three, you can use all five. Um, but yeah, just an educational story that's meaningful to you with those. Yeah. First one that comes to mind too. So I hope that there's a word that's connected. (laughs) We played this game and literally like we picked stories like right off the bat, which is like, and we both knew each other's stories, which was funny. Um, okay. So your five words, um, the first one is joke, J O K E. The second one is glory. G L O R Y glory. Third one is pardon, P A R D O N, and then the fourth one is pay, P A Y, and the last one is betray, B E T R A Y. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to use all of them. You can just whatever story, whatever word speaks to you. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah, these are very intense. Um, (laughs) Yeah, let me see what we could do with this. I guess pay was sticking out just because it's so connected to like our work and thinking about, um, you know, teachers or students with learning disabilities, people who are working in the field mm-hmm. of special education and all public school educators not paid enough at all. And everyone also always says we need to pay teachers more, but like no one really lifts mm-hmm. a finger to advocate for that to actually happen. And that also connects to like teacher prep and pipeline programs where my dad was a public school teacher in Jersey for almost 40 years. And he talks about, he's like, I'm not, it's not shade on the people who would become my colleagues, but oftentimes Mm -hmm. a lot of the students in our town uh, that were like C and D students. Again, I don't like those like terms, but students who actually didn't succeed or do well in school wind up being like, well, my fallback is to just try to be a teacher at the school. Right. And, And how many places where it's not this coveted professional uh, prestigious place in society. I feel like, and especially for students with learning disabilities, like we want the most expert people who know theory, who know practice really well to, to be providing those services. And yet sometimes we have folks who kind of have just fallen into those professions. Not to say that they don't, they're not deserving of support and that they're not dedicating their lives to doing something great because they are. It's just this idea that we need to have pay reflect the societal impact that we want these positions mm-hmm. to hold and we just don't um so that's it's not a story it's definitely not a joke but i guess pay stuck out to me because it was just like i have in all my years working for the bureaucracy i would think and i would say and even with steph we talk about this all the time the average educator who wakes up earlier than i do who goes mm-hmm. and commutes when i get to work remotely who then takes on the emotional trauma of their students and gives all of themselves emotionally and mentally all day, then co- commutes and comes home, right? They are getting paid half of what bureaucrats are getting to to yeah. sit there and make policy decisions that impact those teachers. So it's just that there's such a big difference there that I feel like more people should be um, more animated to to call out. So I do feel like yeah. sad by that, but I'm also like, no, absolutely. Teachers need to be making the same amount as these bureaucrats. Right. And we talk about that a lot, too, because I think what you'll hear um, very often from people who talk about why teachers aren't paid more is, well, you get summer off. 
and you have all a whole week for Thanksgiving and then you have two weeks for this holiday break and then you have spring break and they kind of throw that all out there as if I was I was actually talking to high end about this a few episodes ago just as if teachers aren't also continuing to work in the summer by providing summer school services and coming up before school starts to set up their classroom to make it a welcoming environment. And, oh, hey, yeah, I know that I'm going to have this week off here in the fall and I'm going to be taking home all these papers and all this work and all these things I have to grade and I have to look at and I have to do. And, oh, by the way, I have to do this professional development and I have five IEPs in December, so let me get that done. Like there's so much additional that I feel like teachers are doing regardless of whether they're quote unquote off. And then the other thing I talk about with people so much is like, okay, yeah, they don't, you know, quote unquote work during the summer. They have these holiday breaks, but the salary they're being paid is for literally 187 days of the year, at least in Texas. It's a 187 like school day year. And it's still not enough for all of the work. Like as a teacher, when I was teaching, it was my day started at 630 work. You get home at 435 and then you're doing all of the things you needed to do that day you're not done until 8 8 30 you know so it's just it's such a taxing job and even through COVID and and how stressful that was for everyone in education but teachers and students like yeah very underappreciated teachers service providers special educators like the whole the whole group um is just so underappreciated so I agree with you on that it's a betrayal it's a betrayal. And there's it's no, there's no pardon for it. No joke. That <laughs> is a betrayal. But you know, I was also thinking too, like they get paid this whatever salary. And then I think about all of the teachers that have to buy their own stuff because the school doesn't have a budget for them. I mean, yeah. think about like, and like there, are, I, I, I just know so many special education teachers that are amazing and like go buy things for their students, treasure boxes, like whatever it like sensory stuff to make sure there's like a comfort like all of that stuff and is like doesn't even cover salary if if, if we're going to talk about what they're actually having to pay um so we could go on and on and on about that because i I, it's like i mean it it is i remember my my sister had made a comment i like she had put on i think facebook at the time and just was like i really wish that like teachers could get paid more and like she was appalled by like the individuals that had the audacity to comment, but I guess that is the world that we live in. And some of the people were like, well, it's because teachers don't provide entertainment, like NBA players. And like, and and I was like, who do you think taught that NBA player? Like, and and it's just so crazy because people make these ignorant comments. And I'm like, come on, like, you've had to, like, I can think, I can go back in time and I can think of like some of the teachers that truly like changed my life or like that I would remember. And I was like, Oh my God, they taught me so much or, Oh my gosh, they really care for me. Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's crazy to me. Um, but I really do Jeremy really appreciate you coming on. And I kind of want to have you on again because I want to pick your brain on the legal aspect of things. Um, just -hmm. because there's so much Bailey and I like really, we follow the law very closely, but I never, I never, um, I never had the thought of like, sometimes the law is written in a way for people to succeed versus you know, for the whole community, I guess. And I would yeah. love to pick your brain about that. Cause I, I didn't I think would about love that. to I, talk about it. It's, yeah, it's, it's the number I one really thing did. in law school. It's that almost oh, every really. field of law, every single field of law is, is written by folks in power and their ways to like, um, whether it's 
in property law or it's in contracts law and how businesses are man or it's in educational and civil rights right like a lot of it is just or even think about like racial hierarchies that are embedded into law right they're about exclusion they're about who gets what services and that's literally like the code is that has always been written into the law into all of our founding documents and current legislation just think about what they're you know whether it's in texas state ledge or it's in congress these laws are giving or retracting or, or taking away people's rights and people's um like benefits right so that's it's yeah. all for me it's always been about sustaining and maintaining power and or trying to utilize the law to get folks more rights yeah i really do want to pick your brain about that so we're gonna to have to have you back on because bailey and yes. i we read well because for for special education we have to know the law and and what's required and and so yeah i want to i want to pick your brain about that but i am yeah, so yeah i'll me. reach out yeah and we're, we're so grateful that you came on i feel like i've learned a lot it was a very productive and eye-opening conversation really Talked about a lot yeah anytime you want to talk and that's the thing too i, I love talking about the stuff that's uncomfortable so if ever you you want to do a podcast where, where people talking about their identities and and what makes them tick and that that's the space that i'm usually in so i i, I like those conversations yeah absolutely awesome. yeah well thank you so 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 much and i'll reach out to you we're we're, we're taking a hiatus for the holidays but we will be back with this will drop before the holidays, but we will awesome. take, um, we'll come back with a season two. So we'll, well definitely you have you back you on. Both do too. You know, advocating and talking about special education. I think it's super important. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you it. so much. Yeah. It was so nice to meet you and we will see you soon. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Bye, Jeremy. Bye, Jeremy. All right, guys. So that was Jeremy. Hi, and that was the, probably one of our most fascinating conversations. And I now have so many more questions for There's him. like parts and times where he just left me speechless. I'm like, what? Like, yes. Stop. And the, the other thing y'all, I, I need to be honest for our listeners, because when we reached out to Jeremy, we had kind of an idea of what he did. You know, we were like, oh, he's in central office and admin and kind of, you know, works in this bureaucracy. And I, my mind was blown at actually all the stuff that he has done. And then like his legal degree, I had no idea about that. And so um, we were kind of, we had this whole list of questions high end that I was like, we're skipping the questions. We're done. Not even because- skip. We didn't even, we asked them one out of the right. seven and nothing else was touched because he blew my mind away. Like, yes, yes. Talk about it not staying so on good. track. I know. So So we really hoped that you guys also love this episode and love hearing from Jeremy. And just, it was also really funny. Hyann, I do have to say like, Hyann texted me in the middle of it and I was like, I can completely see how him and Stephanie are together. This all makes sense. Right. Um, Yes, it does. Two brilliant minds. Yes. Yes, exactly. Brilliant minds. It's just like two strong advocates like that. They are like, what a power freaking couple. I know. I know. It's insane. Um, but so for our listeners, like Hyann said, we are going to be taking a little break for the holidays. So, um, you know, we will obviously be coming back in January, February for season two. Um, yeah. This episode is dropping. And then Hyann, there is one more episode uh, dropping. Yeah, it's going to be our holiday special episode. And that will be our last edition. one for the season one. And I can't, I literally can't believe we are done with season one. It's wild. It's but wild. I'm so proud of us. It's been, it's so, been fun. so fun. And honestly, Hyann, I think I told you this before, but it's honestly just been really fun that we're doing this because I get to see you on a weekly basis. And I, know, I love that. 
Yeah. <laughs> Bailey catches me up on her dating life, her like yes. just everything. And it's been so good. And our crazy story is at work. And it's just been so great. It really has been. And I'm so yes. glad we like that like Spidori stuck, you know, like all of the other things that we kept thinking about. But no, it's been so great. Um, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We really hope you enjoy Jeremy. Um, if you have a story or you want to talk to us or you have a question, please feel free to email us at spedories at S-P-E-D-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. And Bailey, where can they find us? <laughs> you can obviously find this podcast anywhere that you listen to podcasts, um, specifically the where I listen on Apple, uh, but we also are on Spotify. And then if you want to send us a DM or you want to chat or you just want to find some you know funny videos that we have posted you can find us on instagram it is at spidoris s-p-e-d-o-r-i-e-s and the same for tiktok we are at spidoris on tiktok and we are so excited to be wrapping up season one and coming back very soon with season two yeah so we'll see you guys later bye bye guys bye